Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ridley Road's indoor market is saved, ending years of regeneration peril. A new benefit shake-up threatens to entrench barriers blocking entry to the elite professions. Workers down tools on a 9L skyscraper over financial worries. And why plans for a new statue in Greenwich, seemingly depicting a creative property developer, are causing a storm. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is Cyber Chadder. Cyber is an architect at Cullinan Studio and course leader on Open City's Accelerate programme. For those of you that don't know, Accelerate is a free London-based outreach program designed to encourage young people between the age of 16 and 18 from backgrounds underrepresented in the industry to explore professions concerning the built environment. Thank you very much for having me. Hackney Council has come to the rescue of market traders in Ridley Road Indoor Market by signing a lease on the site, ending years of speculation over the future of the popular and historic feature of Dalston's retail landscape. This is a story that has been reported in Time Out and My London and also triggered a wave of responses on Twitter. The council will be taking up a 15-year lease on the basement, ground floor and part of the first floor of the Ridley Road shopping village following its refurbishment, and taking over the management of the much-loved indoor market in a move that is intended to safeguard it as the centre of Dalston's local economy for years to come. The existing landlord and owner of the building, Rainbow Properties, will retain control of the rest of the first and second floors to be run as offices and workspaces. The council's stake includes 40 indoor trading units and space for an on-site office for its market team. Existing traders on the ground floor will be given the opportunity to remain trading at the shopping village, while new low-cost premises and storage facilities on the lower ground floor level will be made available for street traders. Originally, Rainbow Properties had proposed a complete redevelopment of the site in 2018 in a move that would have evicted the traders with only two weeks' notice. This spurred a huge campaign to save the market that attracted national TV coverage and significant fundraising efforts. In 2019, the Save Ridley Road campaign group succeeded in getting the building listed as an asset of community value. It's a big deal, and this was cited in Hackney's decision to purchase the lease and could protect it from future redevelopment. This news comes hot on the heels of the withdrawal of developer Granger's regeneration plans for this Seven Sisters indoor market, which we covered on Lundown in August last year. 
Conversations with TfL are still ongoing about the future of that site, which is not too far from Ridley Road. And some commentators are optimistic that Harringay Council could follow Hackney's suit and take an active role in the management of the Seven Sisters indoor market going forward. On Twitter, the Save Ridley Road campaigners said that saving the market was, quote, not something one campaign group can do. They said it's not in the power of Hackney Council either. It's what can be achieved by a whole community coming together and fighting for a vision of our city different to the one imposed on us by developers. So, Cyber, why is this such a big deal? Alongside the Haringey story, we've also seen the closure and demolition of Elephant and Castle Shopping Centre, somewhere that's well used and loved by the Latin American community. It seems these types of stories are coming up time and time again and are frequently impacting minority communities in particular in areas of London undergoing rapid gentrification. Critics might say that the market buildings are shabby or unfit for purpose and that these types of grassroots campaigns hold an area back or even block strategic development of other assets such as housing. But what do places like the Ridley Road indoor market really mean to local communities and why should they be protected as important parts of our built environment? Thanks Merlin. I mean this this story I think it's an obvious one for the community and I think that's why it's such a big deal. Um, We don't often get to see the community hold out against this sort of development and you know as we've seen at Elephant and Castle um, it can be sort of sole destroying or it can kind of take the soul out of a a local community just being you know bulldozering these kind of gritty and slightly slightly shabby uh market areas um i think um you know it it, places like ridley road market mean a lot to local communities because they're kind of the heart of the hustle and bustle um of the center of a community it's where it's kind of a backdrop to where people live their lives and yes i think it is interesting how people say something, you know, these sorts of markets are, are shabby and, you know, it's not a particularly beautiful building. Um, and, you know, saying things are shabby is always a go ahead for knocking things down. But retrofitting and reuse of existing buildings is a huge part of reducing carbon emissions, you know, going forward. Um, and, it, you know, it can't, you can't just think how we used to and just knock something down because it, it doesn't look right. Um, and that's just on the kind of architectural side of things. You know, the, so- the social value of a place like Ridley Road Market is is really, really high. And it's just, it's really encouraging to see that the council has recognised this and set uh, a precedent uh, for local council. You know, you mentioned Harringay as well, um, whether or not they could follow suit. And I, and I feel like it's a really kind of positive story uh, for us to kind of uh, hang on to in times when, it can feel like a lot of um, high streets and independent shops and independent vendors are, are struggling uh, against, you know, the, the pandemic and the various lockdowns. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you, know, you know, other stories have popped up that show Hackney Council doing the exact opposite and shutting down a small business like Island Grill, um, which is uh, nearby uh, for smoke, uh, smoke pollution that local residents um, complained of. So I guess there's a, there's a kind of a, a, a sweet spot of, of where um, something is, you know, really important to the local community and people really come together and support it. 
And it feels like Ridley Road is one of those places. I mean, one of the things that's quite interesting is that Hackney Council, they've said that this move, made after years of uncertainty, is part of a wider effort to support the local area. Uh, and Ridley Road has actually been identified in the draft Dalston plan as an area of key importance uh, to this work. Uh, those are plans that will be outlined further in a final draft to be published later this year. Um, so what does this latest move to rescue the market say about the current state of development across Hackney and then also beyond uh, in a city like London? I mean, are these types of developments which threaten to reshape the social makeup of an area simply not welcome anymore? Um, or, um, you know, can we expect to see this type of story popping up more and more often in the future? Well, I think it's interesting that the uh, draft of Dalston plan was uh, published in June 2021. Um, you know, it's clear that some of the key issues in this plan have been shaped by the pandemic and local consultations revealed that the kind of priorities uh, for this plan can kind of follow on from what has been revealed to us about how we use our cities and spaces because of the pandemic. So, you know, there's there's a real priority for healthy green space, less congestion, active street frontages, um, you know, and there's a commitment there um, in, in kind of facts and figures as well in the plan. There's a plan for 385 new street trees and a focus on a market garden at Ridley Road. Um, so that's that's really kind of encouraging to see, um, but also uh, has, a, I think, a direct link to how there's this renewed um, care about health and well-being and having uh, you know, access to green space and vegetation in, in the urban, in an urban setting. Um, and I mean, also in the Dalston plan, um, there's a note about uh, the Dalston Eastern Curve Garden which um, you know, needs to be protected as well, according to the plan, and is, is very well loved. And that's a precedent of how, how things can be done over there at Dalston Eastern Curve Garden. And um, incidentally, um, the Accelerate students, uh, who I teach uh, on the Open Cities Accelerate programme, will be visiting Dalston Curve Garden this weekend. So that's a, that's a kind of nice <laughs> tie-in to the fact that we're, we're talking about this, this story today. Um, I mean, one one concern I guess I have about the, the plan, the draft plan, is that there's earmarked they've earmarked thirty four thousand square meters of new retail and leisure floor space by twenty thirty three, and you know I do wonder whether the Ridley Road vendors can thrive with this sort of projected competition. Um, so that's something we're going to have to wait and see how that kind of develops over time and how that looks in the final version of the plan. The UK government has announced changes to the universal credit policy, which will see claimants expected to look for work outside of their profession within four weeks of first making a claim, rather than three months as it had been before. The shake-up was broken by the Financial Times and also covered by City AM. Uh, it's claimed that the new Way to Work programme aims to get 50,000 benefit claimants into jobs by the end of June. This is all set in a context of labour shortages across the country and across multiple sectors. Official data has shown that vacancies rose to a record high of 1.25 million in the three months to December. But according to the FT's analysis, this is not because of higher rates of employment, which has almost fallen back to its pre-pandemic level, and rather because of lower inward migration and an increase in people dropping out of the workforce. So what does this mean for people with an interest in urbanism, in shaping the future of our cities such as London, and in particular for architects? As an industry, architecture can be notoriously volatile. It seems to have survived the pandemic crisis well, 
well, with construction continuing during lockdowns, property prices booming and architect salaries rising by an average of 5-10% to 10% in the last 12 months. But a certain generation will remember bleaker times in 2008, when the financial crash had an outsized influence on architecture and the built environment industries. In 2009, The Guardian reported that architects were joining the ranks of benefit claimants at a faster rate than any other profession, and the numbers claiming benefits were in the thousands. Of course, back then, architects weren't forced to change profession after four weeks, and many later rejoined the workforce. Criticism of this latest shakeup has been wide-ranging, with many noting that new claimants will face a five-week wait for their first universal credit payment, meaning almost all of them would be required to widen their career search before actually receiving any support at all. Open City's director, Phineas Harper, said on Twitter, quote, If I had to give up finding a job connected to architecture after just four weeks, my entire life might have been different. Benefits gave me time to find a job where I could thrive, which could be a basic goal for any economist hoping to cultivate a workforce. Jay Morton of London-based social housing architects Bell Phillips said, Four weeks is hardly enough time to find a new job in your own sector, let alone retrain for a new one. Will the government be providing free training to help those change sector before sanctioning? Uh, Morton asked. Um, She added, it feels a not well thought out policy penalising the most vulnerable. So, Cyber, what's this all about? In both the 80s and the 2010s, in the wake of financial recessions, there was much reporting of people who had resorted to other work and hadn't returned to architecture at all, resulting in a lost generation that became increasingly apparent years down the line. How important is the benefit system to industries like architecture and the built environment professions, which have seen significant and sustained downturns at various points? And do you know of any examples of people who left the profession because they weren't able to find work? Well, Merlin, this is obviously an issue close to our hearts on Accelerate. And, you know, personally looking for jobs when I I, I graduated um, in in that last recession and um, it did take a while for a lot of people I know to find work. And most of them are from kind of very comfortable middle class backgrounds, um, not the kind of wider kind of widening participation backgrounds that we work with on Accelerate. So to me, it's almost this this whole thing is this whole story is almost as galling as the retraining campaign from the pandemic. You know, from the perspective of students in the built environment professions, you know, not just architecture, but engineering and, and, you know, the other, the other um, kind of consultant professions in the built environment, it is really, really tough. You know, they've trained for a number of years on highly rigorous courses, amassing debt like, you know, I think it's triple what, what we would have amassed when I was when I was studying. It is just really upsetting to hear that, hear the government saying that they're not going to be supporting them to find work in their chosen sector. What do you think is the significance of this move for architecture and other built environment professions, which are historically uh, very elitist? Um, throughout the pandemic, uh, the, pres- the profession has been grappling with itself in many other ways, you know, from the examination of exploitative work practices in the profession uh, to a reckoning with the narrowness of its demographic. Uh, now, you work on the front line of Open City's Accelerate programme, helping to improve access to built environment disciplines. In your experience, does this latest move make it even more likely that the wealthy can just ride it out without needing to claim benefits while other people with lesser means forging a new path for themselves get frozen out because the welfare system is no longer set up to support them absolutely melon it's adding fuel to the fire of excluding anyone who's not from a comfortable middle-class background 
you know, one thing that we find with a lot of our students on Accelerate is that they they want to know how much an architect earns. You know, they want to know what are the job prospects. And a lot of them really want want to be able to work while they're studying. And I think there's a there's a really big pressure on the RABA and, you know, practices um in, in London and beyond to to step up on apprenticeships because they do feel like one of the only ways that we can, you know, allow people who can't just take three years out to to study architecture and read the poetics of space and you know that people who really want to be able to to train and practice I think need the support of of an apprenticeship at the moment it's very difficult even as a as a professional who knows the industry to understand how the apprenticeship system works and it's it's not like there are a set number of apprentice spaces that are well advertised by the RBA and various practices, it's almost like looking for a job in itself. And I, and I feel like there needs to be more of a push and more of a commitment to apprenticeships in the wake of something something like this, so that that becomes a kind of more accepted and more mainstream way of getting into architecture and engineering. If I was an Accelerate student looking, looking at a new story like this, I would probably think, oh, pack it in and become a doctor or something else, you know. Um, and, and, and it is a lot of the time, the stories that we're hearing from some of our students are that their parents aren't interested in them becoming a creative. They're interested in them studying a profession like law, medicine, accounting and finance, because it's clearer the kind of job progression for those kind of um, those kind of industries. And I think, you know, a story like this just kind of exacerbates that feeling that following a creative career is something that's a bit more of a risk. Builders have started leaving the £900 million 1-9 Elms development as Multiplex, the main contractor, chases the developer behind the enormous Vauxhall skyscraper project for outstanding payment. This is a story that was covered in AJ and Construction News. The development, designed by US architects Cone Pedersen Fox, features two mixed-use towers standing at 56 and 45 storeys, uh, which is set to provide 487 flats as well as a 172-room hotel and 11,000 square metres of office space. Uh, it's all quite close to the Battersea Power Station and Vauxhall in southwest London. Uh, they've been under construction since 2018, but workers began leaving the site on Monday the 31st of January and it's unclear when work will start again. It's understood that disruption began because principal contractor Multiplex is waiting on payment from China-based RNF Properties UK, the site's developer. This comes after RNF's Hong Kong arm was put in selective default over its amount of debt after agreeing with its lenders to delay a repayment equivalent to £539 million earlier this month, although this has not yet had an impact on the company's credit rating. Uh, stories like this catch a lot of attention right now because business news around the world has been dominated in recent weeks and months by the ongoing crisis at Evergrande, a Chinese property giant with the dubious accolade of being the world's most indebted company. In December 2021, Evergrande defaulted on its loans, which were worth more than $300 billion, and that happened after months of 11th hour payments. Now, the future is uncertain for hundreds of Evergrande properties that have been left unfinished, with numerous sites shut down by angry suppliers and prospective home buyers left out of pocket. Back in London, it's also not the first time this particular Nine Elm site has been dogged by funding problems. RNF acquired the site in January 2018, seven years after plans were first unveiled when the original developer, Wanda, ran into financial difficulties. RNF also owns the neighbouring Nine Elm Square and Vauxhall Square developments, although both are unaffected. 
Meanwhile, the Daily Telegraph has followed up a 2021 report that investors were fleeing the wider Nine Elms development zone amid questions over its long-term profitability and doubts it will ever reach completion with a story about service charges at the other end of the enormous Thameside post-industrial strip. According to the paper, more than half of the residents at the Battersea Power Station development have rebelled over exorbitant service charges at the prestigious development, which they say are potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds more than they should be. Um, so, Cyber, what's this all about? On the one hand, there's a lot going for Nine Elms. It's got two new tube stations, uh, prestigious tenants like the US Embassy and Apple all on board. Um, but with high-profile site walk-offs, it seems things are not going swimmingly. Uh, in terms of the breakdown between client and contractor, uh, what is the significance of a showdown like this with workers literally walking off a construction site after an apparent payment dispute between the parties? Um, have you ever seen something like this happen in your time in practice? Um, and what do you think of the chances at reconciliation? So, I mean, uh, anecdotally, I, I hear about this sort of stuff happening, not all the time, but it's not unheard of. In practice, I mean, I wouldn't want to go into loads of details, but it is the sort of thing I have heard of. Personally, the whole Nine Elms development, I feel, I think it feels fraught. It feels like it's a financing breakdown because it's a model for development that doesn't fully make sense anymore. Um, but that's my own, um, you know, non, non-financial professional opinion. Chances of reconciliation, I mean, it, it just, the, mo- the money needs to get going again. It's just one of those, um, those stories that hits headlines, but actually there's probably a whole host of things that we're not hearing about underneath the surface. And, and just like as an architect, is shutting down a, a construction site and obviously a tower, a skyscraper construction site, is that, is that quite an undertaking? I mean, effectively mothballing it could be weeks and months. Is, is that an easy thing for a builder to do? There's a huge cost um, related to it. I think that, that goes without saying. Um, and I think for the scale of this sort of development, you know, 487 flats, 172 room hotel, 11,000 square metres of office space. Um, that's that's a lot a lot of building to to be sort of waiting to keep building um you know and, and it goes back to that that comment I made about the this kind of a model for development like who are who are these things for um in the context of people working from home more who who's going to be working in this eleven thousand square meters of office space um and you know i I've always had an issue about these kind of um luxury flats that seem to just be places for people to to hide money and buy to leave um so yeah i mean i, I think i think it, it'll probably re- resolve itself it'll probably get going again because there's just too much at stake for it to just lie lie um kind of mothballed and and vacant uh, without anything kind of pushing forward so yeah we'll have to wait and see but i i do think that these sort of sort of stories happen a lot more than than are reported because the optics are probably not uh, not right to be able to report them. The developers behind the 1,500 home Morden Wharf regeneration in Greenwich have found themselves in the spotlight after it emerged that a quirky statue planned for the site could bear a face very similar to one of its team members. Uh, hyperlocal platforms, including Inside, Croydon and 853, which is based in Greenwich, have picked up on this unusual story, which is also featured in AJ's Astragal column. Uh, design-led developer UNI uh, was met with curiosity and a little criticism uh, from the local community-focused media platform 
platforms after images emerged of a planned sculpture of a flat cap wearing every man meant to celebrate the human story of dock workers. Uh, computer generated visuals show the statue sitting on top of the historic Morden Wharf building close to one of the several skyscrapers uh, designed by Dutch star architects OMA which recently won approval to be constructed on the prominent riverfront site. Uh, the images were published on UNI director Richard Upton's Instagram account and revealed the statue to have a striking resemblance to Martin Evans, UNI's design director. Uh, Evans' career spans decades. He is credited with the transformation of the old Truman Brewery on Brick Lane into a shopping destination in the early 2000s. Uh, he's worked with Upton at multiple companies, including through the merger between Cathedral Group and Development Securities, which formed UNI in 2015. Uh, aside from his work at the company, he spent three years at Dartington Hall in Devon and two years as the non-executive chair of Brick by Brick, Croydon Council's development company, which is currently being wound up. As we covered in September last year, UNI was recently bought by leading UK development company Land Securities following a half-year loss, which prompted a board shake-up and sparked an ongoing programme to dispose of non-core development and trading assets. Uh, following a flurry of interest, UNI has clarified that the statue, in whatever form it might take, will be subject to separate planning approval and is yet to be agreed upon. Um, so, Cyber, uh, the Morden Wharf development won outline planning in September, despite opposition from local MP Matt Pennycook and some resident local resident groups. Um, maybe you could start us off by telling us a bit more about you and I and a bit about Morden Wharf and why you think this uh, latest rendering has stirred up such strong interest. Um, I mean, is it a case of extraordinary ego, disregard for local communities or just a simple joke between friends uh, taken too far by some commentators, possibly without a sense of humour? Well, I mean, you and I acquired this site in 2012 and, um, you know, it's been it's been eight years of vision and ambition. So there's definitely going to be some ego uh, hidden, hidden in amongst all of that. They're advertising this new development as what a new London neighbourhood should be. So 60% new public realm, a park, 275 metres Thames frontage. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, excitement behind, you know, for you and I behind this this development. Um, I mean, in, in regards to the story, Anthony Gormley would be proud because he famously uses himself for his statues. Um, so maybe that, that's where, where, where it's all going with, uh, with using Evans as a base for this statue. I mean, it, it's a funny story, but, you know, I wonder if it is a joke that's gone too far. Maybe it's a coincidence. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. And I, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things, obviously, um, it has sort of sparked interest. I mean, do you think we can have a sense of humour about this sort of thing? Or does it demonstrate in the wider picture a kind of perceived sense of disconnect that alludes to a bit of a deeper problem in the world of development? Not necessarily talking about you and I and Morden Wharf in particular. Um, but is it just like people are just a bit cagey about a statue of a property developer? Um, there's so many other things that can be done working with a local you know, with local artists, local community groups to, to, to do something more meaningful. Like, is this statue what um, people from the local area want? Um, I don't know. Uh, have, have they consulted on it? I, I don't know. Um, it, it's just, I guess, I mean, you know, what we're saying about having a sense of humour, I do I do sometimes feel like, you know, this sort of thing, it, it should be, if, if there is any public art, it should be meaningful to whoever is going to be living there or whoever currently lives in in a development um, and, you know, whether or not it's the face of, of their director, um, I, I kind of don't don't think we should be wasting too much time worrying about this sort of thing, because there are way more important issues for us to be thinking about rather than whether or not this is a little little mini ego project um, for, for a developer. Um, so, 
yeah, it is an easy, easy target for criticism. Um, but it's also sort of a marker to say, why don't these things uh, come directly from the community rather than a kind of top-down approach, which is what this, this feels like. I mean, it might go down well in the Barbican where there's lots of architects and possibly some who've worked for Martin. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> Cyber, thank you for coming on the show. Um, it's been an immense pleasure uh, to discuss the, the week's big news in architecture. Um, how can our listeners keep up to speed on the really important work that you're doing? Where should they go? Yeah, so if you want to follow me personally on social media, um, my handle is at Cyber, so Cyber like Cyberspace, at Cyber Chudder. Um, and I also have my own little podcast, um, which looks at um, telling, like collecting oral histories uh, about uh, people's experience of colonialism and the British Empire, um, which is called Podcards from the Colonies. So you can follow that um, on Instagram as well at Podcards. Um, and yeah, so I, I post a lot about the work that we do on Accelerate, also post about my everyday life um, as uh, an architect at Cullinan Studio and uh, also post a lot of stuff about being a mum of two. So <laughs> keeping it real there as well. Um, and Merlin, is there anything coming up at Open City you think listeners might be interested in? Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for asking. Uh, obviously, I love talking about what's happening at Open City. So uh, this week uh, on Tuesday, it was the Lunar New Year. And to celebrate, we put out a special Pocket London printed tour uh, of the uh, exploring the original Chinatown in, in Limehouse. It's led by Sufan Addy and it's now available to buy on our shop. Uh, this Friday uh, is the deadline to apply for the Baylight Fellowship, uh, the fellow is a new experiential learning program for ambitious housing commissioners who want to deliver outstanding homes of the future. Uh, plus, as ever, we have lots of tickets available for our year-round range of exciting walking and cycling tours. Details for all of these are on our website. Um, thanks again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.